Father, thankful for Jesus Christ and that He has purchased um, the church with His blood and thankful that we can be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, the, the, uh, the group of people who have been saved from the time of Pentecost all the way until the rapture. And as a group, we make up the bride of Christ and we have responsibility to follow our great shepherd and we pray that you'd give us uh, helpful and clear instruction in your word tonight that would show us what we need to do and and how we need to do it so that we can please you and uh, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Corinthians were dealing with strife in the church. That's what these first four chapters are given to. And part of the problem was that they were more concerned about status and the claim and recognition. And um, that became their driving motivation. And as a result, it led to war and strife within the body of believers, uh, among the church members. And so Paul writes because he finds out about this division that's going on and he wants them to see that that is not how the church ought to be. That is not what the church was purchased for. Uh, God instead has given us all the tools that we need to work in the service of His church, Christ's body. We've been given the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit who um, has preserved for us the Scriptures, and He also illumines us so that we can see the, 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 the value of Scripture, so that we are uh, not hostile toward the Scripture, but rather we are inclined to believe it and see the significance of its meaning. And so in that regard, all of us as Christians within the body of Christ are on the same page. No one of us is better than the other Paul and Apollos are not competing against one another and neither should the, the, the other church members within uh, in the city of Corinth should they be competing and, and putting themselves into factions and groups. Instead, what the Corinthians need to see is that they needed to recognize how childish they were being in their faith and then recognize the, the work that God does within the church and focus on what, what was eternally unchanging, what is eternally unchanging. And that is that God is responsible for spiritual growth. God is responsible to actually make the change. So as much as we might look at different people uh, and, and the amount of work that they put into something, you know, Paul waters and Apollos, or, or Paul plants and Apollos waters, Um, we we need to recognize that God is the one who causes the growth. And then secondly, we need to recognize that there is guaranteed coming judgment. So we have to answer to God for how we have worked within the church. So um, those two motivations ought to help us uh, see the importance of spiritual growth and stop worrying about 
um, getting our way as much as we are worried about advancing the, the work of, of Christ. So let's read verses 1 through 15. You follow along, I'll read. This is the Word of God. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able, yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire, yet so as through fire. So here Paul is continuing to make his argument against faction division, which rises out of their selfishness, their fleshliness. And he wants them to see that God is the one who is responsible for spiritual growth. But at the same time, we still are held accountable for our work. God is responsible for spiritual growth, so we can't boast in anything that we do. And that's what he's going to say uh, in the next passage we'll have to look at next week. But but, uh, I'll just show you verse 21. So then let no one boast in men. Verse 23, and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. There's nothing that we can boast in. No matter what kind of accomplishments happen under our work, under our ministry, there's nothing that we can boast in um, except for Christ Himself because we are nothing. God's the one who causes the growth. But the, the danger is that if we think that God is the one who causes the growth, and He does, then we can just do nothing. But, but that's why he shows this second illustration of a building to say, no, at the end there's going to be an inspection. And what kind of materials you used, how you worked, is going to be revealed in the final day. And so you can't just sit on your hands and say, well, God's the one who causes growth. God's the one who builds the building. We have a responsibility. So there's, there's uh, both sides of that that coin that we often see, which is God's sovereignty and our responsibility. All right, so let's look at the text, verses 1 through 4. Even long-time Christians can act like unbelievers, verses 1 through 4. It's a 
kind way to say what Paul's talking about here, that you're acting like um, men of flesh. He says, um, he says at the end of verse 3, Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 2, end of verse 3. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? So Paul is going to give a sharp rebuke to the church at Corinth and tell them that they are not living like believers. He's not saying that they are not believers. He's saying you're not living like believers. But what I want you to notice that is that he begins the passage with and the third, the third word there in verse 1 is what? Brethren. So he's saying, I'm not saying you don't, you're not saved. I'm calling you brothers. And then he goes on to say um, at the end of verse 2, Indeed, even now you are not yet able. So what's the implication there? Okay, that at some point you're going to grow up. But right now, I've got some, some harsh words to say to you, but what, what I want you to know is that I treat you as a brother, I see you as a Christian, and I expect you to change. You're not yet able, but you will. But here's what I have to say. First, in verse 1, you claim spirituality with your little groups that you formed, but in reality, you're not spiritual at all. You claim spirituality, but you're not acting spiritual. Verse 1. I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, as to those who are indwelt by the Spirit. I couldn't speak to you that way because you're not acting like that. The problem is that they think themselves as spiritual because I am of Paul and I am of... So they, they, they have their groups and, and they see themselves as greater than these other people within the church because they've, they've determined what godliness is in their minds. But they're actually acting like spiritual children, or even worse, spirit-less children, spirit-less people, people without the Holy Spirit. Notice what he calls them there at the end of verse 1, men of flesh. It's as if I'm talking to an unbeliever. That's how I have to talk to you all over again. As if you are controlled by your human cravings and nothing else. Men of flesh. Now, he's not saying you are men of flesh. That, that is that... That's the only way you act. He still believes that they have the Holy Spirit in them. And in the second phrase there in verse 3, I'm, I have to speak to you as to infants in Christ. He's not saying you just now got saved, but you're acting like infants. You're acting like infants. What's worse? A, a child or an infant who acts like an infant or an adult who acts like an infant? That's what Paul's saying here. Right? You have been around long enough. You have been saved long enough, probably several years at this point, and yet you're acting childish. You have much to learn. You know, the nature of children, spend some time just hanging out with toddlers. You know this. They are, they are by nature, self-centered. Right? They don't know how to respect and care for the needs of other people. They don't need, know how to think about others first before themselves. That doesn't come by, by nature. 
that has to be taught to them. And as a result, they, they love to take rather than to give. And Paul's saying, that's how you believers are acting. It's all The church is all about you. The result of their childish behavior is seen in verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Because you're acting childish, and I have to speak to you as if you're unbelievers, men of flesh, here's the problem. I can't impart to you the deeper truths of the doctrines of God because you are still stuck on the basic doctrines. Look at verse 2. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Why? Because you were not yet able to receive solid food. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. I mean, they should have, when he first taught them the basic doctrines of Scripture, they should have accepted them, embraced them, and moved on. But instead, what's their focus on? What's the primary thing that they're concerned about within the church? Right? Their pet teacher. Who's got the best rhetoric and speaking ability? Who has a more winsome personality? Paul's saying, if you weren't so focused on yourself, you could move on from the basics of the Christian life and you could move to the deeper truths that I would love to teach you. And then he reiterates how ungodly they are acting in verse 3, for you are still fleshly. You're acting like someone who's of the flesh, who is controlled solely by the flesh, like non-Christians. The problem is that when we don't graduate from the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, when we don't, when we get caught up in in selfishness and self-centeredness, then it can be hard when it's time to eat the solid food of the Word. I told a story before of my uh, a distant family member of ours who, um, who had a son that they were afraid to, to introduce any solid foods to him for fear of choking. Not even Cheerios, you know, at the time when kids can start... Um, gumming on them and, and um, dissolving them in their mouths, right, and swallow them without choking. Wouldn't even allow that. So over time, what happened is they continued to have to feed him in order for him to survive, but they had to puree all his food. So that by the time he was in kindergarten, he was going to school with packs of, of uh, you know, containers full of his pureed food. He couldn't even take the most basic of solid foods like ice cream. Something's wrong. Uh, even when he wanted to try it, he couldn't. And uh, then when his parents realized how serious this was and that no other kid is doing this that they know of, we need to get this fixed. And so they started doing a search for a doctor who could help them. And several thousand dollars later, they got the kid to, over several months, to finally be able to move gradually to solid foods. And, and the point is that 
I mean, that was the, the kid was innocent in this case. But, but here, the Corinthians are not. Okay? They, are, they have a responsibility to accept what has been given to them and, and then to build on that. But instead, they're so focused on their little, their little groups and, and, and their little pet projects, what was most important to them, that they couldn't take those basic doctrines. And so Paul had to keep going back to those. What exactly those were, I'm not sure. Maybe it's just as simple as Christ is the foundation of the church. We are all Christ's church. Stop you know, having divisions among you. Maybe it's something as simple as that. I'm not sure. So first, their worldliness stifles their ability to discern, to discern the deep truths of God. And then secondly, their interpersonal strife betrays their claim of mature spiritual status. So they were trying to put themselves in groups to show who was better than who than, than the other person, and actually their strife showed that they were immature spiritually. So you want proof of their fleshliness? Just look at their actions. They're not able to make simple discerning choices, and this would be understandable in a non-Christian setting, right? But these are Christians. And the proof that they are acting spiritually is that there is jealousy and strife among them. Look at the second part of verse 3. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Implied answer, yes, you are. Because there is jealousy and strife among you, you are fleshly. You're acting as an unbeliever. And are you not walking like someone who is controlled by his own human cravings, his non-spiritual cravings? Are you not acting like that? And and the implied answer is yes, you are acting like that. And then in verse 4, he shows evidence of their fleshly strife. He says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Here he shows their spiritual childishness again by speaking about specific factions that he knows about. And so their fleshliness leads to their jealousy and strife, and their jealousy and strife leads to these divisions. So Paul can take those divisions, bring them back to the root problem, which is that they are fleshly. They're not living according to the Spirit. Even long-time Christians can act like unbelievers. Secondly, in verses 5-15, through 15, what the church needs to recognize and what we need to be reminded of is that we are all servants of God. We are all servants used by God. So there's no need to exalt one person over another, one group over another. We are all servants of God. Verse 5 gives us the main point of this second part of the text, verses 5 through 15. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Well, they are servants through whom you believe even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So here's the main point. We are all Paul, Apollos, and I think the primary, um, the primary application, the primary um, focus of this text here is, is on the spiritual leaders. He's going to, to have some implications and some applications for the individuals. But what he's saying now is this is, this is what the spiritual leaders have a responsibility to do. He's going to say that I did some planting and Apollos did some water, watering and then he's going to change the metaphor to a building But the point is that his focus here now turns to the spiritual leaders and their responsibility to 
answer to God for their work. And he's going to give two proofs that of this main point. We are all servants of God. The first proof is through the analogy of the field and the laborers. And the second is through the analogy of the building and its inspection. The analogy of the building and its inspection. So first, the proof that we are all servants of God, that is, all leaders... Paul's talking about himself and Apollos and Cephas probably here. Is, is that we have this analogy of a field and its workers. This field is referring to the Corinthians. And the reason I know that is because of verse 9. Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. So he's talking about himself, the other apostles probably, but, but specifically Apollos and Peter, the ones that they were having divisions over. And notice, you, Corinthians, are God's field. So in this analogy, God is the, he's the farmer. He's the one who owns the property and causes the growth. Paul and Apollos and Cephas are simply workers on the farm. They don't own it. They don't have any ability to make things come up out of the ground. In the big picture, Paul, Paul's saying, I just put seed in the ground. Apollos just watered. But notice, through it all, God is the one who caused the growth. Growth, Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So what he's talking about here is not evangelism. He's not saying, you know, uh, we often use this text to talk about evangelism. You know, I might be the one who waters, and you might, or I might be the one who plants, and you might be the one who waters, but God causes the growth. And that is true. That is absolutely true. But that's not what this text is talking about. This is talking about the church. How that... Paul came along and planted the church and Apollos came along and built on what, to change metaphors, he built on or watered what Paul had already started. But in the end, the church of Corinth was all because of whom? It's because of God. Right? That's what he's saying. So he's saying when it comes to church planting, I, water, I, I planted, Apollos watered, God causes the growth. We're simply just two men working in God's field, right? We're not in competition with one another. We're certainly not in competition with God. You know, with, you remember the, the groups that they had? They had Paul and Apollos and Cephas, and who was the fourth one? In chapter 1. It was Christ. So it's like we're putting Paul and Apollos on the same level. Okay, so listen, God is the one who's in charge. God's the one who's causing the growth. Paul and Apollos are underneath him, right? And so we're not in competition with each other. We're not in competition with God. We are simply workers of God. We're accomplishing what He wants. God is the most critical component to the work of spiritual growth. Look at verse 7. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So no matter what, a, what job... A spiritual leader has, God is the one who's responsible for the growth. And in, in the end, all the glory belongs to Him, right? All the glory goes to God. Not to Paul, not to Apollos. And each one, notice at the end of verse 8. Uh, well, here's, you see, the, you see the, the, um, the opposite of competition in verse 8. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. Well, who's the one who planted? Just to get an idea, right? What he's talking about. Paul is. And who's the one who watered? 
In verse 6, it was Apollos. So neither one of us are in competition. Instead, we are one. That's why I say they're on the same team. And at the end of verse 8, each will receive his own reward according to his labor. So God's going to see what we do and He's going to respond to us. We're simply workers in God's, in God's service. And that's what He says in verse 9. We are, we are God's fellow workers. In the context, probably Paul and Apollos, but in the larger context, Paul, Apollos, and Peter. We're all simply workers of God. We're not divided. We, we don't need to make categories of, of who you ought to follow. We are one. So, we are all servants of God. Proof from the field and its workers. And then proof from the analogy of the building and its inspection. Now, he turns the, the metaphor from a field and farmers and workers to, look at the end of verse 9, God's building. So, you are... Corinth, you church are God's field. We came along, we did some work, we saw God do some great things, praise God for that. But here's another way we could describe you. Not as a field, but as a building, right? And then that's what verses 10 through 15 are all about. The work of construction is entrusted to the spiritual leaders. And then in the end, the work of construction is tested by Christ. Now, what we're talking about here is not a physical building, just using a metaphor for what the, the body of Christ is. So he says in verse, verses uh, 10 and 11, effectively, that, that the work is entrusted to spiritual leaders. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. Does that sound familiar? I started something, just like planting the seed, and someone else came along and continued on something. And then we could include in there, but God is the one who, who gets the glory, right? God's the one who is the master carpenter, the master designer. But here he turns it a different way and says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which he laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul and Apollos do the work, but God is the master designer. And yet what he wants to draw out in this second part, this second analogy, is that we have responsibility to answer before God for the work that we've done. Any work that Paul did, any work that Apollos did on the building of Christ's church was owed to God's grace. Right? Do you see that first line in verse 10? According to the grace of God. Paul's like, yes, like a master builder, I was serious about my work and I wanted to make sure that this was done well and right. And Apollos came along and built on it. But in the end, Christ is the foundation stone and He's also the, the one who's behind the design, the architect. So the work is entrusted to spiritual leaders and then the work is tested by Christ. In these final four verses, we see the seriousness of our task as church leaders. And what he wants us to see, I think, is that for church leaders, 
the quality of our work is dependent on the value of the materials that we use. The quality of our work is dependent on the value of the materials we use. We either use materials that are going to last, that are have value and worth, or we use materials that don't last, that have no value, that will not, uh, will not be worth anything. Let me show you that in the text, verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. So there are three non-combustible materials that in the day of judgment he's going to talk about, there's going to be a, a, a fire of testing to see how strong or, or valuable these materials are. And in the final day, these non-combustible materials will still be standing. The work that we do with the, with the valuable materials is worthwhile. It will last. But notice the second category of materials that could be used. Wood, hay, and straw. So how will we know? How do we know which, which materials we're using if we're actually doing something that lasts? How do church leaders know if they're doing something that lasts? And the answer is that we'll find out on the last day, won't we? Look at verse 13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So the point for spiritual leaders, particularly those who have responsibility to, to entrusted to them to lead the church, is that they must build in a way that's keep, in keeping with a solid foundation. Right? If you have a good, solid foundation, then why use worthless materials that are going to be burned up? Instead, use materials that are going to last. And the solid foundation that we have is an eternal foundation, one that cannot be unseated. And therefore, we ought to use materials that are put on it that cannot be unseated, those that last forever. And how will we know if we've done well or not? Well, the day of judgment will reveal the quality of our work. And I think this is referring to the judgment seat of Christ when all Christians will stand before Christ at the Bema seat to give an account for everything that we've done, whether good or evil. And the evil works will be burned up and will not, not bring about any rewards for us. But the good works that we do will last and they will result in real rewards. And so what we need to see here is that as those who have been entrusted with spiritual leadership in the church, that, that we're not going to stand before other pastors, we're not going to stand before other ministers, and they're all going to say, let's take a look at what you've done. Right? They're not, spiritual leaders are not going to stand before deacons or even their own congregation. Because the church doesn't belong to other pastors. The church doesn't belong to the deacons of this church. The church doesn't belong to this congregation. The church belongs to Christ. And He has responsibility over it. And He's the one who's going to be the final judge of it. We answer to Christ. So notice the, the two extremes here in verse 14. If any man's work he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. So... Use valuable materials and the building of Christ's work, then you can expect to receive a reward. But, verse 15, if any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss. 
but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. The question is, what is he talking about here? Is he saying that there will be a loss of salvation? I don't think so. Look at the last line. But he himself will be saved. So he's not saying that. There are going to be some spiritual leaders that make it to the judgment seat into glory just by the skin of their teeth, right? And that's what I think he's talking about. They will be using all the world's methods and trying to to appeal in, in all of society's ways. They like to appeal to people. And in the end, they'll be saved, but just by the skin of their teeth, yet so as through fire, narrowly escaping hell, effectively. So it's not a loss of salvation here. What he's talking about is a loss of reward. That, that if a spiritual leader is going to, to use materials that are worthless and that are able to be burned up, that are not eternal, then they can expect that they will lose rewards. That doesn't mean they won't have any rewards. I think everybody who makes it to heaven is going to get some kind of reward. But, but there's, there should be some uh, disappointment, at least, by these spiritual leaders who could have done more. So, verses 1 through 4, Paul is directing his attention at all believers. Now, this whole section, he's trying to get their attention about what's most important and who these spiritual leaders answer to. But the second section, verses 5 through 15, are directed at church leaders. But I think it does have application for all of us. So when we look at um, the principles to consider, then I'm going to try to apply it to all of us, not just um, pastors and church leaders. So let's draw out some principles from the passage that we can consider before we go to prayer. Number one, Spiritual growth is stifled by godlessness or fleshliness. I mean, that seems pretty obvious, right? Godlessness is not going to lead to spiritual growth. But this is the way these Corinthians were living, right? They were more concerned about themselves and about getting what they wanted and their recognition and status and making sure that their, the person they were following, Paul or Apollos or Cephas, was matching up to you know, these great Greek speakers, orators out there in the city. And as a result, it led to divisions and it stifled their ability to discern deeper truth. So Paul says, I have to talk to you as if you're a childish Christian. As if you're just now coming to saving faith. You should be far past this. I can't even give you the, 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 the intermediate doctrines of the Scripture because you're still stuck on the, the easy stuff. Spiritual growth is stifled by godlessness. So I think that applies to us personally and to us corporately as well. That, that we're going to stifle the growth of our church as a whole when we are more concerned about getting our way and, and these factions and divisions and personal strife. Second principle, since God causes the growth, we can't take any of the credit. Right? If God is the one who is not only the farmer who owns the land, but he's also the source of all the growth that comes to the land. God's the master. We're the servants. We do the work. We're responsible for our work. We're going to be judged for our work. We'll be rewarded for the good work that we do. But in the end, God gets all the glory because he's the one who caused the growth. We can't come along and say, well, 
It's a good thing that I was there at that time because God needed me. God does use us. Praise God that He does that. But but God is the one who, who gets the credit. He gets the glory. So we shouldn't exalt human leaders because of the role that they played in our life. You know, we shouldn't um, line up be- behind celebrity pastors because of their their great ability to, to communicate truth. Um, certainly there, there ought to be some honor and respect for people who can helpfully expose the Word of God, but we're all servants of God, right? God's the one who deserves all the credit. We, we ought not to um, idolize our spiritual leaders. Okay, do you realize that that's a possibility? That we can take people who are spiritual leaders you know, and, and turn them into an idol and put them in the place of God? So God deserves the credit. We ought to give Him the credit. Thirdly, since the field belongs to God, we must be diligently working. How we live, again, I think this is directed primarily at spiritual leaders, but I'm making application for all of us because I think there's a secondary, uh, there's implications that we can draw from this. So how you live affects the body of Christ. And, and I would appeal to you know, Ephesians where it says that we are all a part of the body of Christ. Each member is important to the, to the, to the work of the body. Each ligament and joint supplies what is needed for, for the body to grow. And so we all have a responsibility. We, we can't just kind of live on, our, in an, on an island spiritually and think that, that we're going to see great spiritual growth. We need to follow God on His terms. This is His field, His building, spiritually speaking. And so we must do ministry God's way. You know, it's not, it's not about polling our society to see what the best church growth methods are. We could do that, and we could probably succeed in their eyes. You know, maybe because we follow their method, we have a big building and a large budget, and we're helping a lot of poor people. But but all those things could be burned up if they weren't done God's way, relying on His strength and reflecting or, or deflecting all the glory back to Him. It's about us and our enterprises that we're building, rather than about God and His church. God, if this is your church... Your people, they belong to you and I ought to lead them and I ought to contribute to, to the health of the body how you want me to. And then finally, oh, not on there. The last one is, uh, since inspection day is coming, we must take our service seriously. Since inspection day is coming, we must take our service seriously. So what I mean by inspection day is judgment day. Right? There's coming a day. The picture here that Paul's making is, you know, we're putting a building together and there's going to come a time when, you know, when the city's going to come out and check the building to see if it's up to code. Uh, surprisingly, they actually had some form of that back in the first century. Maybe not like today, uh, where you had to pull a permit and all that, but but they did want to make sure that the structures were sound and that they weren't going to 
collapse on people and, and kill them and all that sort of thing. And so there was an inspection day coming. The workers need to know that. Right? We can't just we can't just skimp on materials here or just use worthless materials. We need to use the best materials. We're gonna make the building according to the way God wants it. And so the point is is not what we're talking about, when I say building, I'm not talking about this structure. I think we've been conditioned to, to think that way. But when I say building, I'm talking about what Paul's talking about, which is this spiritual body of believers. And, and there's coming a day when inspection day is coming. We have to answer to the one who, who has all the regulations of what he expects. And how you work matters. How you work for the sake of this body of believers has value. It does not go unnoticed, even if it might feel like it does. Everything we do for our church and as we'll see next week, against our church is seen by God. God's going to say, anyone who destroys the church of God, I will destroy him. So everything that we do will be evaluated by Christ at inspection day, the day of judgment. And so how we work, how we serve matters. You see, God is building something that we can't build on our own. Now, He graciously allows us to be a part of it, but God is the one who, who gets the glory in the end. And that's what we want. That's what He wants. And so we work according to His instruction, what, what He expects of us, and He has not left us to just try to figure this out, kind of walking through the dark. He's given us His Word to help us know what He expects of us in this church. All right, any questions or comments?